What did we talk about last time? John 15, everything on the board. John 15, 15. We, we broke the conversation down into three questions. Does anyone remember what the three questions were? They're like, I, well, you can't ask questions when the answers are on the board, Tim. That's cheating. What are we saved from? What are we saved for? And then a totally different kind of question, which is what does God get out of all this? Well, yeah, and I did ask the question, can God be surprised? Yes. You guys like that one, apparently? So later that very day, my parents were here, and so they said, let's go to Ocean City. So we all went to Ocean City, and later that night, we were processing the sermon, Mom and, Mom and Dad and I, and I said, honestly, guys, I'm not as interested in the answers that I gave to the sermon at all. What I'm interested in is those three questions that... I asked. I said, maybe every five to 10 years, it's important to come back and have each of us answer the questions. What am I saved from? What am I saved for? And what does God get out of all this? Because your answers are going to be different 10 years from now. Your perspective will be different. Your experiences will be different. It's not that the Bible has changed, but hopefully you've gotten to a deeper place maybe, or at least a different place. Things look different from different locations on the journey. Don't they? So I wonder, man, sometimes I wonder if 10 years ago my answers to these questions, maybe, maybe they were better. Maybe my walk with Jesus was closer. Maybe my heart was more intimate. I don't know. Maybe my mind was more expanded with a stronger vision of God. Maybe life's beat me up along the way. I don't know. He knows. We always like to assume we're making progress, don't we? Oh, I'm smarter now than I was when I was 20. Maybe. Maybe not. There's no guarantee that as we age, we're gaining wisdom. Age doesn't equal wisdom. Obedience to Jesus does. If you drift from Jesus and you get older, you get dumber. You get meaner. Right? Somebody in their 20s might have more wisdom than you because they spend more time in the presence and, and hearing the voice and obeying the voice. Not just hearing, obey. Right? That's what Psalm 119 says. I have more wisdom than all my teachers because I obey your word. So who knows? But I think it's important to find the right question. I told mom, I said, look, my answers weren't really what interests me. And I'm glad we worked on some answers to the questions together. But the answers to me, sometimes the, the, the trick is to find the right question and live with it for a while. Because sometimes we, we, we waste our lives because we're trying to answer the wrong question. Amen. Yeah. I heard a guy say, Imagine if you, imagine life like this. You look at the person next to you and they are in a house-shaped box and there's a ladder. So you see everyone else taking the ladder and trying to climb as high up on the house as possible. You look to your left, that's what he's doing. You look to your right, that's what she's doing. You see you have a ladder in your house, so what do you do? Clearly, you must be missing out if you're not doing it and you want to know at least what they're experiencing that you might not be experiencing. So you get your ladder and you start climbing as high as you can. Then you get up there and you're like, now what are we supposed to do? So you look around to see what other people are doing. That's a life of answering the question, how do I fit in? That's the wrong question, right? So then you spend the first half of your life trying to figure out how to fit in, 
And then you realize, I'm not happy here. This isn't fulfilling. Maybe this isn't what the ladder's for. Maybe this isn't even what the house is for. Maybe I wasted my first 40 years doing what everyone else told me I'm supposed to do to be normal. Maybe being normal just means being dumb. So finding the right questions is a big deal to me. I still want to do this. I've been saying I want to do this for a long time. Take a list of the questions God asks people in the Bible and just put it in one document. Because God usually cuts right past all the clutter and fluff and what people think is going on to the truth. Right, so first thing for one of the first questions in the Bible is, where are you? Well, that's a great question. Where are you? Here's a question I have. How can I love God? Because really the point of what I was pushing at with what do we say from, what do we say for, and then the third question was actually not can God be surprised. The third question was what does God get out of all this? The third question was what does God get out of all this? And the whole real, the main point I was trying to drive us to is, is what about God? Right? Like, in any of your relationships, imagine constantly thinking only about what do you get out of this. I'm saved from my loneliness to belong with someone who cares about me. At some point, if it's not also about them, you're selfish. Right? And I find it so weird that this, and you, this is again, I'm recapping, that, that half the way we present the gospel, I don't know if it's just in America, but I've only lived in America, so it's what I know. Half the way we present the gospel, if at least, maybe more, is rooted in selfishness. It's 100% fixated on my felt needs, my problems, my sins forgiven, my hope of heaven, and how I can modify my life using God's special tools to make my life not so hard. But what about God? That's the point of last week's message. Did that come through at all? Okay. So I was like, this is good. We need to, mom and dad said, dad gave me some feedback. He said, you talk too fast. You say good things, but you don't say them slow enough that we can think about them. And then I'm starting to think about something you said and you're 10 miles down the road without me. And you've said all this other stuff. And I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to start talking slow anytime soon. You know what I'm saying? Like, so what I'll do is I'll just keep preaching the same sermon a couple weeks. Until people go, I think we've been here before. Are we going anywhere? And then I go, now we got it. How can we love God? See, to me, that is the question. Not how can I be saved from hell? I mean, no one wants to go to hell. I I think if we had a poll of all humans, they would be like, oh, I don't want to go. But how can we love God? Because that's what we're here to do. Like, if you start to dig deep in the Bible, 
It's pretty obvious pretty fast. A few weeks back, we, I, we tried to establish the idea that, not, that, that sins are different to God and in reality, and that not all of God's commands in the Bible are equally weighty. They're all valid, they're all God, but they're not all equally weighty, right? Jesus in Matthew 23 says that some of them are like straining out gnats, and some of them, when we break them, are like swallowing camels. Namely, he says, the love of God and mercy. That's at the top of Jesus' pyramid of values. Loving God is the first and greatest commandment. And we're so fast to throw in the second because we're human-centered and selfish and obsessed with humans as a way of justifying the love God. In other words, I think we're so human-centered that we don't even see the point of loving God unless God's about humans. You understand what I just said? So we actually skip part one to make God look good. Or just do so much good in the community that people will see that God's, God's good. Translation, if God's obsessed with you and you're obsessed with you, then your values are aligned, right? Yeah, and he's actually not obsessed with you. He loves you. So how can I love God, I think is the question. And if we added a clarifier, we would say, how can I love God daily? Because if you don't say daily, it becomes sentimental and feelings. Like, I love ice cream. Anyone in here love ice cream? Wow. How many people are going to get ice cream as soon as church is over? Too bad we don't have it at the thing. How many of you like frozen custard from Rita's? I'm doing an advertisement on accident. I do. But that's not what we mean when we say love God, is it? When, when you talk about, we, do you love the home team? Do you love your favorite, you know, Stan loves, what's the team he loves, the Cowboys? He loves them Cowboys. He likes two teams, So when we say love God, that's a weird word, right? Yeah, let's define love. Does it mean you emotionally feel something when the topic comes up? Or does it mean all your action is to prioritize the, the correct treatment of that object? That would be a much better definition of love than feel something when the topic comes into your mind. Oh, I feel a certain kind of way. I love America. When I hear the Star Spangled Banner, I just go, woo. I see some jets fly over and some fireworks, and I go, woo. No, if you lay your life down for your country, then maybe you love your country. D- difference, right? People, you know, moms love their kids. And when we say that, we imply they would die for their kids. And if they wouldn't, we instantly kind of make a face like, what? Something's broken in you. You wouldn't die for your kids? Weird. Now, so, okay, that's love. So to say, I love God, means more than I feel emotion and sentimental sweetness and, oh, he's just the best. 
It means you've arranged your life in such a way to live that out. So putting the word daily on there is helpful. So last week, you guys already pointed this out, we read John 15, 15, where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, right, or slaves. Now I call you And my point there was that there's this upgrade Jesus invites us into. And actually, the first thing we learn is to be his servant. Because when we come to him, we lean not on our own understanding. We're selfish to the core. We're dumb. We think the wrong things. We believe the wrong things. Our pattern and our habit and our mindset and our ideas and our feelings, the things we feel strongly, are wrong. How do you fix you if the part of you that's broken is this part? Are you going to use a broken brain to fix a broken brain? Can you fix a broken toaster using only the tools available in a broken toaster to do it? You're like, I would just throw out the toaster. That's American. That's American. Get a new one, right? So the first thing, we come to Jesus saying, I'm not as I ought to be. Just let me be your servant. But eventually, as our minds renewed, eventually, as we learn to hear his voice and do his will, eventually, we actually begin to internalize his values. Who's with me so far? That takes a while. They've been with him three years before he says, I no longer call you servants. And even then, he said it right before they all abandoned him. (laughs) Interesting, right? But his, his desire is friends, friends who carry his values, who no longer need to be controlled. By the way, Jesus doesn't want to control you. Maybe you might not agree with that. There's a bad translation of Romans 8 that says, the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace, but the mind controlled by the flesh is death. And it's not in the Greek. It's not what the Greek says. The Greek says the mind of the spirit is life and peace. The mind of the flesh is death. He's not interested in control. In fact, that violates the whole purpose of what he's about. He's interested in the real heart, my heart, your heart, being so intimate with him that his values become my values. His desires become my desires. His beliefs become my beliefs. And now I get up in the morning and I I want to do what he wants me to do. And then he stands back. Has he, has he ever said this to you? You decide. God, should I do this or should I do that? Pick one. Love me. Has he ever told you anything like that? He does that kind of stuff to me regularly. It's frustrating. Just pick a good one. Love me. It's okay. What? But I thought you had a specific will for my life. I do. This is how you find it. You try stuff. What? Just tell me what to do. Well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you the kind of thing to do, but I'm not going to tell you always what to do. Sometimes, but rarely. How many times in the book of Acts does God specifically give them, you have to go here and talk to this person? Like three times in the whole book of Acts? The rest of it, they're just going. They're just doing the next right thing. 
So I've said this so many times in here, you know the story. Early in my time here, when I used to get really stressed about sermons, not that I don't get any stressed about sermons, but when I used to get really stressed about sermons, like didn't sleep well, I can't even remember how long ago that was. That was so long ago. That's so wonderful. I get to sleep at night, even on a Saturday night. And I, I remember saying, God, what am I supposed to preach this next week? And I'm not hearing anything. I'm getting frustrated. What am I supposed to preach next? And he says, what do you want to preach about? I go, Whatever you want me to preach about. It's not about me. It's all about you. Well, what do you want to preach about? Maybe you didn't hear me, God. Tell me what you want me to preach about. Most of the sermon anxiety comes from anxiety over what to preach about. That's wasting time we could have been using preparing. If he would just tell me early in the week, and then I could spend the whole rest of the week preparing. But he doesn't. Almost never. And then, check this out. After sermon... Wendy Davis used to sit behind us during the singing. She'd hand me a blue note. And after service, she'd walk up to me and hand me a blue note. And it was the passage I preached on or the theme I preached on. But she got it during the singing time, but didn't give it to me until after the sermon. And, it was the, and every time she gave me a blue note, it was what I preached about that day. But I didn't hear God. I just preached what was big in my heart. Whatever was big in my heart is what I preached, but Wendy would get a confirmation that the exact message was what God wanted me to preach about, but he didn't tell me that. I stopped worrying as much after a while. After like the 10th note, you stop worrying as much if you're on mission or not, or if you're on point, or if you're, well, can I tell if I'm hearing okay? You're hearing fine. Shut up. Get on with it. Relax. If you miss it, it's fine. You probably won't, but if you do, it's fine. Why are you so stressed? So God asked me that. Why are you so stressed about this? I'm like, I want to do what you want me to do. And he goes, you know why you need me to tell you what to do? Because you're afraid of failure. And I said, what? He says, yeah, freedom means responsibility, and that intimidates you. If I give you freedom and I say, Serve me however you want. You go, but what if I screw it up? I don't trust me. And he goes, okay, I could tell you line by line what to do, but that's slave. That's a slave. You're grown beyond that now. You're not living a sinful lifestyle anymore. You're living an I love God lifestyle. All right, I trust you. Preach what you want. And I go, you're stressing me out. Well, because you have a fear of failure and you're not sure what to do with freedom. And he said this, he said this, I want to see what you're going to do with your fingerprints on it. I know what I would preach and I know how I would preach it, but I made you because I want to see you do you. And I thought, whoa, this is no longer about preaching. Now this is about some bigger thing. This is about some bigger thing. Remember how I said, okay, when I went to college, it was a little bit of a culture shock because it was a Methodist school. And, and 
So I figured out some things. Methodists are like the hippies. Baptists are like the yuppies. At least the rich ones in the north. Sorry for the clarification. In the south, not so much that way. In the south, Baptists are more rednecky. Now we're getting on stereotypes. And that's okay. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Stereotypes are only offensive if they're really offensive. So I went to Carey's school, which was a Baptist school, and I felt guilty for peeing in the urinal because it was like gold-plated. I went to my school, and it was like hippies throwing frisbees and sitting in the lawn in circles with guitars and like, hey, man, what's going on? Hey, what? what's happening? And then you go to her school, and it was signs everywhere, do not walk on the grass, pagans. What? And you'd sit in these circles and to get to know each other, hey man, let's get to know each other. Let's talk about our stories and tell, hey man, what's your life verse? Where are you from? What's your favorite animal and food? And I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go back to my dorm room. You know what I'm saying? That's a weird question. Life, what's my life verse? What the heck is a life verse? And then I figured out it was like a Methodist thing. All Methodist kids are like go to some Bible camp and they all pick a life verse. I don't know. You're saying that you don't know about it. No. You, ain't no, you ain't no Kentucky Methodist. No, I'm a Delawarean. He's a Delawarean. So I'm sitting in this circle and, and <laughs> I kind of agree with you. But that's not getting, I agree with you. So I'm sitting in a circle and people are going around telling their life verse. Go, it's okay if I say that into the recording. They're just wrong. And I remember somebody was like, my life verse is, which one is it? I can't remember the reference, but I know the verse. You know what I mean? Like Google knows the address, but I know how to get there. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist verse about Jesus. Less of me and more of him. Amen, amen. And I remember thinking, this is weird. So back in my room talking with my friends, you know that thing where you flip your Bible open and just point to a random verse? I go, here's my life verse, and I was being all goofy. I flipped the Bible open, and I pointed my finger, and I looked, and I said, I believe I have made a great mistake. (laughs) He teaches error concerning the Lord and the way of peace he does not know. Abandon ship, pull the eject. I mixed two metaphors there. One was a fighter jet, one was a ship. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, I believe I'm going to be landing in the Hudson. But when we talk about He must increase, I must decrease. When John the Baptist said that, what he was saying is, people came to him and said, hey, all these people used to be coming to you to be baptized. Now they're going after Jesus. Doesn't that bother you? And he's like, what are you talking about? That's the whole point of my ministry. I'm thrilled that they're going to him now instead of me. Half my ministry was to get y'all to repent so he would be revealed. He's now being revealed. What do you think, I'm upset? Now, but we take it to mean something different. We take it to mean it would just be so much better if I simply wasn't born. I'm so sinful. Get me out of the way. If, I, if there's any of me in it, it must be bad. And God's like, look, when Paul wrote letters of the Bible, his personality got into it and it wasn't a mistake. 
Like you see Peter in his letters. You see what I'm saying? Those prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't get out of the way. They got in the Spirit. They didn't become less of themselves. They became their real self as God intended. And like I said last time, he had less of you when he had none of you, but he thought none of you was nearly as good as all of you being here full of him. So he made you. Yes, the way being Jesus. He, so stop saying less of me and more of him. Yeah. Yeah. He, okay, instead of saying less of me and more of him, well, he had less of you when he had none of you. But he thought none of you wasn't nearly as good as having all of you. His goal is not less of you. His goal is more of you surrendered to more of him so that you become the real you, the you he saw in Christ before he made the world. The old you isn't even the real you. The old sinful, wicked, dead in sins, born of Adam, inherited the nature of, of, of Adam. That's not even the real you. So for you to repent of being you is a violation of the gospel. What we are called to say is, the old me is dead, the new me is here. Christ in me is the real me. Me in Christ is the real me. The real me loves God. The real me's native language is love. I was born for the glory of God. The glory of God is my native land. I fell short of the glory of God, so Jesus came to restore me to the glory of God. Why would I then look at my nakedness in shame and apologize to God for what he already saw and dealt with in the cross? This is why the first question he had, where are you, right? Or that's the first question. Then follow-up question is, did you eat from the fruit? From the, did you eat the fruit from the tree? Who, third question, who told you? No, I'm sorry, it was the second question. I'm, let me start this over. Second question. Who told you you were naked? His view of me didn't change when I ate from the tree. He still sees exactly what he saw before sin entered the picture. So what does that mean? Does he believe lies or do I? Listen, so let's say you're just desperate, you're wicked, you're selfish, you're completely addicted, all your addictions have made you a worse person and hurt everyone you loved. It is correct to say, um, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I have become a sinner. That's all accurate. It would be incorrect to say, I have no value. It would be incorrect to say, I am worthless. Because even though he's not in denial about our state, neither is he deceived about our true nature. Our true nature, which has become hidden, become buried, become distorted. Okay, so the real gospel, the real gospel gets the what are we saved from and what are we saved for settled correctly so that we're saved not just from hell but from the power of sin and shame that disconnects us from God. We're saved for fellowship with God as the very meaning and daily bread of our life so that now we can get on with question three, not can God be surprised, but question three is how do I love God? 
I, I exist for him. To live in him. One of the church fathers says, the glory of God is humanity fully alive. That's deep theology, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like heresy at first. Especially if you, like I used to believe when I was first saved, I used to believe humans at the essential level are completely devoid of value and are wicked. And that to be a human on planet earth is to be evil to the core. I was taught that. I was trained in that mindset. The best the gospel could do, in my mind at that time, the best the gospel could do was forgive me and leave me to fight sin, feeling deeply ashamed, till finally I win the fight on the day of my death. That was the vision I had of the Christian life. And you can follow that logic. Whereas Paul says, you did die. You're right. Only death could free you from that. But Paul says, you died already. It already happened. He says this in Romans 5. He says this in Romans 6. He says this in Romans 7. It's the whole meaning of Romans 8. But this kind of gospel I'm preaching gets us finally to the point where how do I love God becomes an actual option. Because if I am wicked to the core and incapable of yielding to the Spirit, then the best I could ever be is a slave to Jesus. That's the best I could ever be, is a slave and not a good one. Am I making any sense? But for, for the gospel that the Bible actually preaches is such an upgrade that it gets us to the point where loving God becomes a real thing we can do with our lives. Not a theory, not pie in the sky in the sweet by and by, but a daily reality. Because guess what? There is someone who can live this life. You know his name. We sang to him all morning. What if he comes to live in here? What if he's an indwelling Lord? What if he and I are one? What if union with Christ is the gospel? And what if he who, who alone is right and righteous and good and pure and lovely, what if he comes to dwell in me? That changes some things, right? I still haven't started the sermon. That's a weird thing. So last week we asked, don't worry, I won't go so much longer. It's already time to stop. But last week's main scripture was John fifteen fifteen, where he calls his friends. We're the sort of people... He can share things with. This still blows my mind to this day that he said, here's the kingdom, leaves it in our hands. I'm going to go sit on a throne and wait for you to mature into this thing and walk it out. I trust you. And it says he's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Well, who's going to do that? What? It blew my mind when I was first reading Acts and Paul would be like, Do you know the situation where Paul is talking to this ruler and Elymas, the sorcerer, is trying to talk the guy out of receiving Jesus? So Paul turns to the, to the sorcerer and says, basically, I'm going to, this is Tim's words, I'm sick and tired of your bull crap. You're blind. Boom, he's blind. 
and then he can finally talk about Jesus. The governor receives Jesus, and then Paul says, cool, and leaves. He leaves. He leaves. Or Philip in Acts chapter 8. The Spirit grabs Philip and motivates him, and he's going down. The Spirit says, go down this road. So he goes down that road. As he's going, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. Don't go on the rabbit trail, Tim. And he's out loud reading the book of Isaiah. And, and the Spirit says, go over there. So he goes over there, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? He's, it's a very clear part about Jesus. And the guy says, how can I explain if no one exp- it teaches me? So he explains Jesus. The dude says, there's water. Can I be baptized? He baptizes him. And then it says, the Spirit took Philip away. How can you trust these people's conversion to be so real you can just leave? Does that never stagger you people? When you read it, does that stagger you? That Paul's like, okay, uh, I've been with you a couple months, I'm out. You got the Holy Ghost, you got your own thing going on, you got your own relationship, you'll be fine. And then leave. Apparently, this gospel changes lives. And the people who introduce people into it have so much faith in it that they refuse to turn us into robots or slaves. They refuse to release long lists of moral rules for everyone has to follow, but they keep it as basic as they can to just help us identify what belongs to the flesh and what belongs to the spirit. Not as lists of rules, but as helpful checklists so we'll know what we're rooted in and get back to relationship. Isn't that wild? They have such faith that the indwelling Christ in you loves God. And if it'll help you tap into that true nature, you'll love God. We didn't even get to the start of the message. I guess we'll take this up again next next time. I was going to read Psalm 115 and pieces Psalm 8. Yeah, you're right. I was going to read Psalm 115 and a piece of Psalm 8 and quote Acts 17 and talk about God's godness. I didn't say Katniss, Aberdeen. I said God's godness. This gospel is such a massive upgrade. And it's filled with upgrades. Probably 10 years from now, if I ask you, what are you saved from? What are you saved for? And what does God get out of this? You might answer that very differently than right now. And that's fine. That is fine. You might be in a very different place on your journey then. But my question to leave us with this week is, how do I love God? How do I love God? Because that's what I'm here to do. I am not here for me. I'm here to love God. And I, if, I, if I had us break up in little groups or have a little reflection time, I fear most of us would start talking about our devotional life and, and Bible reading and some things. I feel like those are instinctive, habitual answers. And I'm like, no, 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 stop that. 
let you and the Lord have a real conversation about what it would look like and what it would mean for you to love God daily. You might be surprised by what he said. One time he says to me, you're doing it wrong. And I go, doing what wrong? I'm out on the trails, taking a jog. You're doing it wrong. Doing what wrong? Being led by the Spirit. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're trying to be mindful and aware of my presence and then figure out what my presence is telling you to do and line up with that. And I go, uh, yeah, uh, duh. And he goes, yeah, that's wrong. I go, well, what should I be doing? He says, whatever you're doing, just intend that I receive it as love. And I go, whoa. You mean instead of thinking there's this one will of God and I can't miss it, I'm just to freely, creatively even do what I do as me and offer it to you to be, like, what are you saying? I shower and say, receive the shower as love. By the way, one of the little things I do is just little tax on myself is I don't allow myself to get in the shower without doing push-ups to failure. That's not me exercising. That's me just, that's just me paying my tax for existence. So this morning I'm doing the push-ups and I'm saying to God, receive this as love. Receive this as love, God. And I was like, and when we're preaching today, when we're talking, receive this as love for you, God. Receive this. as Doesn't this match what Paul says? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving glory to the Father. You know what that means to do it in his name? To do something in Jesus' name means, on the one hand, to do it as his representative. But it also means to do it unto him as an act of worship. All right, let's stop. Let's stop. Prayer team can come on up. And we say things like, without him, I can do nothing. And that's a fact, by the way. That's true. But you're never without him. What do you got, Stan? Um, anybody been having problems with their either their kidneys or their ribs? Because all morning, right up around here, I've been, I've, I've been in pain. So if that's, so if that's anybody, I want to pray for it. What you got, Daniel? Uh, Heidi. Just have Heidi come up here. Mm-hmm. You guys got anything? Yeah, if you'd like prayer for anything. Uh, nothing in particular that I have, but if you'd like prayer for anything, come on up. We'd like to pray for you. We sang about the reservoir and filling. I think we did something about filling and come on up. I get filled to be emptied out and filled back up and he's a reservoir so and then it said jesus all all of me what was it jesus all of me and um i always say lord show me where i haven't get whatever i haven't given you all of so if there's anything you want victory over that you maybe haven't given him all of come on up we'll pray about that let's pray over the food too god we thank you for the meal we thank you for all the needs and the people and the hearts represented You are a mighty river. You are our source. You are our foundation. We can live. We can die. We can grieve. We can celebrate with hope because you fill our lives, God. Whether we can perceive it all the time, you fill our lives. Open our eyes to see what we have failed to see until now, that you are with us. And hopefully that we are learning to grow in this thing 
in gratitude. Amen. Amen. Amen.